Striketober, more than 100,000 workers in the so-called United States either participated in or prepared for strikes in one of the largest increases of organized labor in the 21st century. Striketober began amidst the Great Resignation, when people started to quit jobs due to low wages and oppressive working conditions during the COVID-19 pandemic, which some economists described as a general strike. In response, we share one water protector's reflections from the front lines of the Stop Line 3 movement as they discuss how labor organizing is vital to our movements, like land back, climate justice, and prison and police abolition. Their story from a direct action is a beautiful allegory for how we can collaborate, strategize, and care for each other on the front lines and in our daily lives as we continue to navigate the very real daily personal challenges amidst our collective crises, including the pandemic, social, economic, and climate injustice. What brought you here? So what brought me here was, it was sort of the culmination of several factors. I just finished a job that I was working that had a 12-month lifespan. It was like a 12-month contract. Um, and that ended, I don't know, two weeks ago maybe at this point. It was a very short time after that job ended, I packed up my stuff and came. So it was the freedom from the 50-hour work week. Another factor was I had been aware of this camp for a while because I know a person who runs in similar circles as me, back from where I'm from, who came a few weeks before I made the decision to come. So it had already been kind of in my head. But I knew I had made the right decision because I spent the night in Minneapolis with a dear friend of mine on the way up here the night before, and that was the night that the video broke of the Gulf of Mexico just being literally on fire. And from that point on, everything that has happened has happened in a way that has reinforced like the idea that this was the right thing to do, you know? And why and is it the here. right thing to do? Because we're out of time, I think, is the real message. I, I don't have any real personal reasons other than that, you know, I benefit from clean water just in general so it's it's more of a broader umbrella thing but i can sense that we're out of time and i can sense that the legislation maybe that's being like fought for and forestalled right now isn't even enough anymore because it's accelerating you know five years ago it was like we have 10 years and then three years ago it was like we have two years and now i don't feel like we have any years yeah i feel like the time that we have left has been decreasing yeah. to now i feel like we're at an inflection point where that is now zero. So you were part of the action on Tuesday, and I think you had a particularly intense experience, as did others. So curious what you feel comfortable and um, what you'd like to share about that. Yeah, okay, so for anyone who's listening, who is unaware of what the action was, the objective of the action was to stop work on the pipeline for as long as we could 
a day even just to buy any amount of time that we could possibly buy by causing disruption. And the particularly strenuous experience that I had was with, it was a group. Um, we had one person in our group while leaving the area that was not able to move as fast as the rest of us. So we, we made a calculation in the moment that it would be easier to try to find a side road to wait on and wait to be picked up. And this went wrong for a few reasons. One, because the road was farther than the GPS made it appear due to like, you know, just a GPS fault. It was too far for us to reach, so we had to double back. And what happened was by the time we had doubled back and tried to take the exfil route that the other team had taken, just the normal route, the police had actually found that route. And they were parked at the end of the trail that was used to leave the area from the team before us. And so we had gotten trapped because of our botched exfil between a line of sheriffs from all over neighboring counties and the private security firm and the camp. And so our, our stressful hike back was, it was several hours through the woods. So we needed to maintain sight of the road because we were using the road to guide us back to camp. We knew that camp was on the road. However, we simultaneously needed to not be visible from the road because after the sort of caravan of cop cars that was at that trail left, they began just patrolling up and down the road. And, you know, we had, from our perspective, no idea whether we had been seen as still in the area or whether they knew we were still in the area or not. So it was obviously safest to presume that we were known to be out there and that they were looking for us specifically as opposed to just patrolling around. So there was a lot of slow movement to keep ourselves concealed from the road, which added to the length of time it took. That being said, there were a series of factors that contributed to us evading the police successfully and not getting arrested. Because if they had seen us, I do believe that we would have gone to jail. Uh, how many they, were there? Five. And I honestly, what I, what I meant earlier, when I said earlier, was that it feels like, I don't know, this was like ordained or something, is that this story is a good example of that. The factors that led to our successful return to camp were that I think the composition of those five people, those five people each brought a unique perspective, energy, tactical skill set, a unique, I guess, procedural mindset. Um, one in particular that I really appreciated was working very much to sort of slow us down and to keep us grounded and to counteract the sort of frantic and nervous energy because it really did feel like we were being hunted from the road, the cops like driving up. We felt like prey. And in that frame of mind it's really easy to panic and one member in particular of the team was very good at slowing us down working us through our options that we had our decision making was very democratic we had one person in the group who had just been in the woods that was able to kind of keep us in the same direction without a compass which is amazing we were reciprocating care for each other and I, I can't help but think that if even one member of that team wasn't there it might have gone differently and we might 
I don't know, we might not have made it back as soon as we did, or at all. We might have been picked up. And it was an interesting lesson about autonomy as well. Another factor about this too that kind of contributed to the stress was that we had heard that our hasty exit from the area might have led to some arrests of some very important people. That was what we were told. That was a miscommunication, but that sat with us, you know, that we had maybe screwed up the whole way home. So the lesson that we learned in autonomy from that experience when we found out that that was actually not true was that you have to be able to move and engage in that collective decision making based on the information you have at the time as the information changes and you also have to be able to trust that the other groups are able to do the same it's outside of your control but you have to trust that they know what they're doing and that they are able to act autonomously as you and that if the groups act independently and autonomously like that all of the groups will be fine and that's what happened and so you know we were we were like getting back to camp at the very end and we thought for sure that you know we had screwed up and they were going to sit us down and talk to us about like how we had made a bad decision like a bad tactical decision and how we took too long and caused everyone a bunch of we thought they were going to be like mad at us but the reception back was a celebration actually that we had returned safe and that was also the moment when we realized that the folks that we had thought were arrested because of our actions were actually there at camp as well. They made it back, so just fine. It was a wonderful moment, really. I don't know if I have yet gone through it myself and understood like the key lessons that I had learned from that experience, but I think the key factors that made that even possible, like the safe return, without getting picked up by police was the ability to make democratic decisions with the information we had at the time. It was the ability to reciprocate care for each other. And it was the ability to, I guess, even swap leadership roles. Cause we, you know, we had one person who was more or less leading us through the woods, but this person was also a little bit disoriented because of just the energy. And so, us keeping each other like on level ground helped us find the correct route and you know we were we were kind of weaving a little bit but it turned out when we found when we got onto the main road that we had been going in the correct direction the entire time and i think that is just honestly really beautiful yeah i appreciate it i really appreciate you sharing it and just kind of hearing your own recognition observations yeah and i i can appreciate like the symbolism connecting it with um, how we we take care of we and we navigate this omnicidal culture and forge a new world yeah or return to balance so many ways of saying it and I think if metaphorical symbolism is kind of the thing it the decision-making structure was very fluid like the the person who was kind of leading the discussion or the the decision-making process changed over time and the information that we learned we had to adapt to very quickly for example when we saw the cars at the end of the trail we weren't sure if they had seen us or not we could see them but we were heavily obscured so we were under the assumption that they had not seen us at all and then a few minutes later they all you know just tore out sort of down the road together in a line in a caravan and there was a point there where like we might have been spotted 
and we weren't sure of that so we had to act based on how we thought was best according to either scenario you know whether we had been seen or not so it is it is very much like water you have to act like water it, the situation is very fluid it changes very constantly you have to be able to adapt to the circumstances as a group reach a consensus that is comfortable with everyone and act on it yeah. as a group is there anything else you want to say on that specifically before i shift gears and we wrap up yeah bring a map and a compass <laughs> yeah a a don't phones are a wonderful tool but especially if you're trying not to use your location device for tracking reasons, yeah. you, you're going to want at least a compass. Yeah. yeah. Bring a map and a compass. And water. Bring water. And water. Always. Is there anything else you want to share? So I'm a person who is very committed to the labor movement. I got into the labor movement because I worked a terrible job, terrible hours, terrible boss, and not, not terrible, you know. The managers were okay, but the owner was never present and ever exploitative. And it was brutal. It was a brutal job. I was working in the food service industry just trying to like pay rent. And I wanted a union because I figured a union would be able to help me. And I was like sorry to already like ideologically aware of unions at the time. But I didn't know how the process worked. I didn't know how to file for an NLRB election. I didn't know how to run that election. I didn't know how to form shop committees. I didn't know there, there's a lot of strategic institutional knowledge that a person has to have before they build a union. And I didn't know how to do it. We reached out to a local union that's pretty powerful, but they, um, they ditched us because they think another project caught their attention that they seemed was more viable than organizing poor workers. That and the state I'm from, the union in particular that I'm mentioning is a, they represent a lot of police. So, which kind of brings me to my point. As a person who's very, very committed to the labor movement, being here is sort of a departure from what I usually do, which is workplace organizing or just like organizing poor workers. And I think that's a shame. I think it's a shame that this type of movement to stop a pipeline that would destroy commerce across the entire central region of the United States if like this pipeline were to burst in the like the headwaters of the Mississippi I mean there's no reason that the workers of this country should not be demanding that this pipeline not go through because every person who works any job any person really but especially people who work low-wage service jobs like they need clean water infrastructure they need their environment not to be contaminated and poisonous because the rich can adapt they they have the money to build their own clean water infrastructure source their own whatever they have their the money to move out of a polluted region if they wanted to and just leave us all behind here and there there was an interesting dynamic with the workers specifically that are working on this drill site those workers should not be doing it. Those workers should be refusing to do that job because that job is actually harming the environment. It's, it's against their own self-interest. They benefit from clean drinking water, but they drive in there every day and turn the drill on and dig a little deeper. And I guess it speaks to, for me, if a working class of conscious workers was more organized in this country, maybe you could reach them 
you would have an institution able to reach those workers and tell them like you should not be doing this this is harmful and like if you refuse to work like we can support you and you have that option to exercise that power and autonomy and like take that back and another this is another kind of sidebar there's another unique sort of element of the workers that are on this work site in terms of their position on the question of indigenous land sovereignty on the work site we saw several american flags and they were flying them too it wasn't like they were just in a box somewhere they were like visibly like there was they were attached to the drills and to me that signals that these workers are if not sort of subconsciously or like half subconsciously aware of the question of land sovereignty if not that fully aware that they are taking land and drilling under it to further an extractive industry on native land for the empire and that is unacceptable you know that's unacceptable for workers to be agents of imperialism i personally believe in a labor movement that can foster consciousness among the workers that would make such a behavior impossible you know i i believe that labor belongs in the movement for land back and i i believe that labor belongs in the movement for abolition that's where it started you know abolition of the system of wages and abolition of capitalism and i believe that that's where labor should be I will say that having been here and having seen what I've seen, it definitely has maybe struck a crisis of faith of whether labor can get there in time because it's a monumental move that needs to happen. Right, and there's Minnesota for Line 3, which is labeled a grassroots movement, but it's paid for by Enbridge. So in a way, I think laborers are being organized, but by the corporation. Yes. <laughs> They're getting paid. And yeah. that, that's another thing, too, is that the workers... So the workers are obviously disorganized. You know, union density has been on a decline, and whatever the nature of that organization is, anyways, that's a sort of a separate question from the fact that they're not organized at all. But the boss is. Yeah. The boss always is. Capital always is. They're always organizing. You know, you can disrupt a work site for one day, but the next morning you'll wake up to the sound of that drill running because they can source limitless amounts of resources for like you said, like propaganda campaigns, like buying off the locals, souring public support. You know, they do things, particularly the mining company in Duluth, I think is where it's at, was laundering bribes to local police officers through nonprofits to make sure that the police were like bought off, essentially. We don't have those resources. What we need is organized institutions that are powerful enough to counteract that. and. It seems, again, like maybe an impossible task. But here we are. But you have to do it anyways, you know? You have to do it anyways. And victories are possible. The boss is organized, but victories are possible. And this, especially this particular movement, this particular movement, in a way that the labor movement has not, has been building up to this for ever the infrastructure is century literally centuries old the legal structure the legal precedents centuries old the practices the tactics have been just handed down and taught over and over and honestly i think this needs to be a model for 
the labor movement. So I will be taking a lot of what I learned here back to my circles back home. Thank you so much to That Water Protector for sharing their story with us on Anishinaabe land on the Stop Line 3 movement front lines. Though Line 3 is up and running, the need and momentum to shut it down has not been defeated. It is never too late to shut down a pipeline. We hope this Water Protector's reflections sparked curiosity in you. You can learn more about the strategy, culture, and context of these movements in our other Water Protector interviews, We Rise Episodes 35, 36, and 37. Five, six, five, six, seven, eight. I rise, you rise, we rise, we rise, we rise.